0: Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mix Club page or listen live at
1: SohoRadioLondon.com.
0: Hello, you lovely lot, and welcome to the Embers Collective on Soho Radio, bringing you a monthly dose of stories and music. How you doing? Holding up well? I am, as ever, Rixie, and I am joined today by Lone and Jenkins. Hi there. And we have got, with us today, something a little bit different, as we are joined by Sorka and Aaron from Candlelit Tales, who are storytellers from the island of Ireland. How you doing, guys? How are you get on? Yeah, she'll kill you now if you don't pronounce her
2: name right. It's Sirica Hegarty, but I won't kill you. Uh, thanks, Rixie. Lovely to have you here. Uh, Lonan, great to have you as well. And, uh, and for you to have us on our programme. Uh, yeah, thanks very much, Lance.
1: That's OK. That's OK. What I tell people, Rixie, is to call me Sir and then go from there. I don't know why I get a kick out of that, but I do. Uh, it's a difficult name.
0: Okay, <laughs> guys, tell us about yourselves. You uh, are the Candlelit Tales and you are storytellers, mainly operating in Dublin, yeah?
2: Correct. So, Sirk and I are actually both from Cork and I was a very talkative child. And the other way to put me to some way of not talking, uh, not always sleep, but at least keep me quiet, was to tell me a story. And Sorica would basically read me a lot of Irish myths and stories. And eventually, when I started acting in Dublin and trying to give tour guides and realising that there wasn't a lot of work in it unless you make it yourself, then we uh, founded Candlet Tales as a company to just create stories. And Sorica has an abundance of knowledge in Irish myth and folklore. And then the performative edge for me helped out a bit, isn't it right, Sis?
1: Yeah, uh, it is, it is. I'm glad you said sis actually at the end of that because I was starting to think people might not know that we're related and it maybe sounds like I just abducted random children and told them stories, which, you know, goals, honestly. But um, I didn't. (laughs) But yes, Aaron Aaron, uh, is an actor and a performer and uh, he got me to pull my head out of the books long enough to actually tell the stories to other people. And uh, we started doing that in a pub called The Stag's Head in Dublin what is it, six years ago now, um, and everything has kind of grown from there, uh, from little beginnings, and we've grown out and grown up and told more stories and brought music into the mix, and uh, yeah.
0: Without further ado, we should hear a tale. Um, so I think we're kicking off with Aaron. So Aaron, could you please introduce this story? Yes, indeed. This is The Curse of maka
2: no, there was a farmer in Ulster, his name was Crunden, and he lived in a higher place, a high place in Ulster far from Owen Maca and the rest of the Crave Rua he was not a fighting man, he was a man of the land he loved his family, his wife, till the day she died he was heartbroken and had three children to care for till one day he came home from the fields and his children were already in bed. And the dishes were being cleared from the table by a strikingly beautiful woman. And there was a roaring fire in the hearth. the woman looked at him and told him to sit down and take off his boots and warm himself by the fire. So Crundon kinda went with it. He sat down and warmed his bones. He looked at this astonishingly beautiful woman and realized she was one of the she, one of the godlike people from the other world. But he did not want to make a mistake or step out of line. So he simply asked her her name. She said her name was Maka. This might have struck him with fear in his heart if he knew about the Morgan, the goddess of war Maka Bhav, Anand the triple goddess but he did not know those tales instead he just smiled and said it was a beautiful name and she became his wife and this was the way they lived together she cared for him and he worked in the fields they were happy together Crundon had the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. She cooked for him and cared for his children and when they went out hunting, he saw her running like no other creature he'd seen before. She ran with such grace and such speed. She was faster than anything he'd ever seen, faster than the wind itself, and took the breath out of his lungs just to watch her move so well. Time went by, and her belly grew big with child, and his happiness grew as well, until an invitation came to their dwelling, an invitation to come to Owen Makka, the Hall of the King, by Kruhur MacNassa, who was hosting. Now Crundan was set to go on the eve of this feast, but Makka said not to mention her name to anyone or speak about her at all, and the look she gave him stilled his beating heart and he knew he must do what was being told. No, Crundon went off to this feast a little bit saddened that maybe Maka did not come with him so that he could show her off to all of the friends and the allies and the people that were gathered there, but this was not the way so he sat down to eat the choice meats and drink and wine and honey mead that sweet drink drink that is so strong that you can only take a sip and strong indeed it is for it was not long until Crundon became a little bit dizzy and when he heard a mention of the greatest cook in all of Ulster a man's wife sitting across from him being told this that she was greatest When Crundon felt absolutely astonished, nearly wanting to correct the man because, of course, he knew Macca was a much greater cook, being from the other world, but but he held himself. He realised he'd remembered that Maka had warned him not to mention anything about her whatsoever, so he swallowed his words uh, along with his pride and a A little bit more of that sweet, sweet mead, so strong and sweet it was, until another mention of another boast from another man, saying that the wife was the most beautiful in all Ulster. But the most beautiful woman in all Ireland was, of course, Maka, and Crundon nearly leapt to his feet, and before he could actually correct the man and tell him that it was his wife that was much, much more beautiful than his. He simply turned his gaze and looked out the window and saw a flock of geese flying overhead took more sips of that sweet delicious drink he drank it down amongst many more sips and at this stage crundin was well he was very drunk he was bollocks and he didn't give a flying fuck at this stage what he was going to do he'd obliged his wife and made sure he hadn't said anything about her and he was eating and drinking and he wasn't really caring what he was doing and where his elbows were resting and he was just a bit more jovial than he had been in that sort of a way and then the king, Reholmac Nasa, raised a glass and thanked everyone for coming after all he told the people that the reason he wanted all of them to gather and be there with him was to praise the two horses He had just bought the two fastest creatures in the land. Now, when he said this, Crondon opened his mouth and didn't realise that he had just said the words. They're not as fast as my wife anyway. She's the fastest creature in the world. Now, he didn't realise what he'd even said. The words just fell out of his face. He realised everyone... Was looking at him everyone was shook and in shock you cannot say anything against the king in his presence at least and you cannot correct him now with this Crore McNassar stood and glared at Crunden. how dare you he said how dare you take these words and turn them on their head you will have to prove it now Everyone called out and asked where is crunden's wife to prove against this. But Krundan had swords at his neck in a moment's flash and he did not want to do this. He'd been sworn not to. But he had to, so Kruhur Maknasa sent messengers to grab Maka and bring her down Maka to prove that Krundan was wrong. Although Crundan begged and pleaded, he begged, he said it was a mistake and he was wrong. He was drunk, it was a moment's mistake, but he had sobered up in those moments. Those swords and cold steel on his neck now felt very real, and they all turned to see Maka turn and walk through the door. Everyone's breath. Hailed sharply as they saw the fierce beauty of this woman and her heavily pregnant belly. But Krahur MacNassa pointed his finger towards the racetrack, telling everyone that she would have to race against his horses to prove the point her foolish husbands had made. Though she begged and pleaded and looked around at all of the men in the hall there and asked them to please look in their heart, to see that they have all come from women And to not let this happen to a woman To stand up for her was all she was asking She knew she just needed one man But not one man looked in her eye And every one of them allowed it to go on As Crundon fell silent and watched His eyes weeping Grower yoked his chariot his horses no name for the race they went to the racetrack and Maka forced to stand next to those beautiful horses Groor looked down at her from his chariot, smiling a vicious smile, but seeing that there was something otherworldly about her he grabbed the reins that bit tighter and threw off any extra weight from the chariot knowing he would have to press that bit harder to prove that these creatures were indeed the fastest creatures in all Ireland. He looked down at her once more as she looked around not seeing one single friendly face of the men gathered there. She felt a great bump, kick inside her belly and she conceded that she would have to race these horses. When they started the horses galloped and the froth was coming out of their mouth as they ran so brilliantly and smoothly across the field. And Krohor MacNassa was pulling and tugging at the reins to push them on, because as he looked strained in his sight to see that Maka was running as swiftly over the grass, moving in a blurred vision right past them her motion so easy and grace filled her feet barely touching the grass as she flicked right past these men in such a vision of speed he'd never seen before when she came to the end of the race she beat them so easily in the end and all of the men were shook in shock she felt and She felt blood running down between her legs and she cried out now Taken by the pain of childbirth, she squeezed as she gave birth To two stillborn children Her heart broken The scowl that came on her then Stopped every man's breath As their heart beat still themselves She called to every one of them, You have all come from a woman, but you have not stood up for one in front of you today. And so she put a curse on them then. Whenever the fighting men of Ulster, she said, needed their strength the most, they will be struck down by the pains of a woman in childbirth for nine days and nine nights and lie sleeping for nine days after that and the curse will last for nine generations. It will strike any fighting man who is able to grow a beard on his chin. And with that, she vanished back to the other world. And Grohor MacNassa and Crundan and all of the men of Ulster were left to think what the curse of Makka would mean for them. From
0: that day out. And that was Aaron telling the curse of Macca with... Who's doing the music there?
2: So that was a bit of a collaborated uh, effort that was Rue Shea
0: doing the bassline,
2: Ocean Ryan and Alan Holman as well kind of uh, joined in. That's kind of what we've started doing in this uh, lockdown is trying get more getting more people to do more remote musical stuff and as we said we've have a bit of a team and we've trying to develop our
0: remote musical uh, ability. So yeah. Yeah, great stuff. It sounded lovely. Um so where did you where did you come across that story? So this is one of
2: the very first stories we ever told uh, back in 2014. And like I said, Surika convinced me to start Candle Tales by uh, prodding me and poking me into uh, finally getting a venue. And the Curse of Maka I first heard, Surica tell it because uh, it's most of the stories and kind of tales I've ever heard of her first really and it's one of the or the background stories to the Thawne which is the first epic we ever told over kind of five nights and the Thawne Bo cúnla is it's, it's called the Cattle Raid of Cooley and it's this massive epic about Ku Cullen the Irish hero uh, that protects Ulster against an army of Ireland and The Curse of Macca is one of the stories that sets it up and starts it off. And I guess it's, uh, yeah, it, the town is kind of known as the Irish Iliad. It's immense. It's a big old mm. tale. And this is one of those ones that kind of stands just
1: beforehand, isn't there, it Yeah, no, this is one of the ones that it's, it's kind of setting up one of the big plot points of the story. Because this is about an army coming to invade Ulster for this amazing bull. Because it's all about cattle in Irish mythology. Always. All about them cows, and uh, this one—the the reason that Ulster is defended by only one hero who stands against the entire army of Ireland—is because the other warriors of Ulster are under this curse from this goddess who they wronged, and so it's it's setting up, um, yeah, setting up the major kind of the major why of that. This is why there is only one boy warrior to defend the entire province.
0: Oh, right. And so would this be told as part of that huge myth cycle or can it be told individually um, as a standalone story as you did then?
2: Because it's one of the introductory stories it's one of those that like there is an awful lot more here and it's setting up the the goddess of battle rage and fury also known as the goddess of war the Morrigan and she goes by three names. She's one of the triple goddesses of Irish mythology Bav, Maka, and Anand or the Morrigan is her entire title and she's possibly in this story as Maka, as one facet of this huge, kind of almost primordial goddess who is so powerful, she can always mess with mankind and cause strife and conflict. And so it's... And this is
1: the story. This is one of the tales, one of the faces of the Morrigan. And this goddess, this battle crow, who feeds on dead bodies at the end of battles. And of course, the is is one of the most bloody battles in Irish mythology. People are slaughtered, which is not how war was fought in Ireland. War was fought by champions and single combats. And so war was not actually usually that bloody for the Celts. It was symbolic and it was ritualised and there were not high body counts. So the tone is like this really well-known story of a very exceptional war where a lot of people die. And it's kind of... Um, it's an interesting one because I think because we know it, it's, it's one of the ones we're more familiar with. I think it maybe gives a slightly distorted view of how warlike these peoples were. But, you know, they were warlike, but they also, for them, battle and combat was, was ritual. And you see that in some of the writings of the Romans when they, got, when they encountered the Celts. Like these were people who painted themselves and went into battle naked. And it was because it was, it was part ritual. And it was part display as well as just being a test of, of numbers and strength. Um, so it was it was kind of it's an interesting sort of cultural bit as well there.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I, sorry, Greg. I was gonna say it's that um, that performativity of the warrior, which is uh, is always really fascinating within uh many cultures, but particularly within the Celtic mythology as well, you know, and when you read those accounts by the Romans of these naked men covered in blue paint with their hair standing up on end and then this uh ring of druids chanting behind them and you think they must have just been stepping off those ships just going
1: And they couldn't hey, what are we figure doing out. Here, huh? They also couldn't <laughs> yeah. figure out why these Celts brought their wives into battle with them. It was really weird to them that these men fought with the women. So <laughs> that was one yeah. of those kind of like.
2: Don't mess with any of them. They're all mad. The whole tribe is going to come. The whole yeah. lot
1: of them go in with their hair, you know, in mohawks and their, their blue body paint and bare ass naked. Terrifying. Bizarre.
3: No wonder they didn't want to invade Ireland <laughs> or, or didn't invade Ireland in the end. They're like, fuck that.
1: <laughs> these people are way too much. It's all very damp. And I miss Italy. I mean, right now I can kind of relate, but, you know.
0: <laughs> I just want to quickly ask, like, you've you've already touched upon how it feels to perform that live. But um, so when you are doing it with an audience, how in tune are your audiences with uh, the Irish myth cycles? Do they know these stories really well or are a lot of them hearing it for the first time?
1: It's, it's a kind of an interesting one because... Um it's kind of both because a lot of Irish people know a little bit of Irish mythology and I think we all think that we know more than we than we do. So we'd often get people come up to us, people used to come up to us and chat to us after shows in pubs which was always great. You'd end up pissed in the snug with a whole load of new friends. Um, but we'd often get people saying to us, God, I thought I knew these stories. I remember hearing about Fionn McCool when I was gay but I never heard that. Because we hear versions of them that are, you know, cut down and tamed and all the sex and gore is taken out of them and they're they're fed to children, you know? They're kind of sanitized and made all nice and pretty. And I think a lot of the time, a lot of the heart is cut out of them in that in that process of making them making them suitable for what adults think children want to hear or think children can handle hearing. Um so it's funny because there is a familiarity and some people will know something of the shape of these stories, but a lot of the time they're not used to they're not used to hearing them they're not used to hearing them with music and they're not used to hearing them with i suppose the level of seriousness that we take them with
0: absolutely and it's and we know as storytellers but particularly when you know i always refer to back in the day when people were telling these you've got to hold someone's attention now i don't know about you but my attention is uh it's very fickle. I like to flit around. It's not my fault. It's just the way it is. Don't judge me. Now, I like it when you throw in a lot of sex, gore and jokes. That is going to retain me. And back in the day, this was, you know, it goes without saying, but this was the Netflix. This was um, literally the superhero films mm-hmm. that we now get to go to the cinemas and see. And so the more you're going to pack in, the more engaged people are going to be. And... um the more successful you're going to be as a storyteller.
2: But I think we're predisposed. I think it just goes to show that we are predisposed for story and we're constantly looking for the adrenaline hits and the, the dopamine kicks and that cortisol to fucking be reduced so we can have the oxytocin to pump through our veins. Like, it's all... We're neurologically linked to it. And we get it in a visual when it's all 3D and spectacular on a movie, but when the, the ingredients of the story are there and told with fluidity and with connection and with truth then you, you can't help be, be brought along with it. Well, I think, you know, it's to a personal taste as well, but certainly I can't help but be taken along with it, so.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think what Sorka said as well about, like, there's a familiarity to these stories that people know the names of the characters and maybe particularly Coo Everyone's heard of Coo and there's, like, bars named after Coo and Satanta Sports as well. But, like, I remember I told one of the Coo stories at a family party and everyone was like, oh, I thought, like satanta was the dog and i thought like all of these all of these ideas they had about the stories about like who these people were and and we'd all heard them when we were kids and then they just get lost but i think like the children of Lear is one that really stands out with me as as a a kid story that i heard and then you hear the real version you're like fucking hell it's dark (laughs) (laughs) so dark yeah
0: so here's uh here's a little story for you so i'm currently um back living with my parents. And the town I'm from is a place called Ringwood in the New Forest, which is as English as it can possibly get. Thatch cottages and all that good stuff and uh, pints of brown ale. And there is a pub, there was a pub in my hometown called Finn McCall's, um, which was the Irish pub in Ringwood. And I used to go there thinking it's just the name of an Irish pub isn't it? Like, why that's just what they're called. Until I then started uh, investigating mythology and storytelling and then found this legendary character (laughs) (laughs) called Fionn McCool. Do
1: you know what? It's very very appropriate that pubs are named after him around the world because the saying in Irish mythology is that on the day that the name Fionn McCool is not spoken somewhere in the world, the world will end because it will mean that we've forgotten everything that makes us human.
3: Wow, so that's amazing.
1: He's, he's being echoed around the globe by people who don't even know what they're doing, but they're all keeping us here.
3: That's incredible. I just thought
0: it was the name of the guy who ran the pub.
1: Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. You know, ordinary heroes, I mean, know? maybe. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Shall we crack on?
0: Yes, yes, please. Uh, so... Sorka, Mm -hmm. could you please introduce us to your next tale?
1: So this story is a little bit of a departure for us. It's a little bit less story and a little bit more kind of prose poem uh, with some beautiful music in there by Rue O'Shea. And it's a story that takes inspiration from the goddesses of Irish mythology and also from the fact that Irish mythology is a mythology that is, in many ways, lost and scattered, and there are so many parts of it that were never recorded and so many parts of it that we have forgotten. And so this is kind of a, a weaving together of a few, diff- few different things um, and an attempt to paint on water. There is something about the goddess, all of the goddesses. Something that's fluid. Something that slips through your finger when you try to catch it. Something that's missing. Or feels like it's missing. So many goddesses give their names to the rivers. Boan and Shannon. And the great river of Europe, named for Danu or Anu. And her name might mean something about the waters of life, or it might not. Like so many things about the Goddess, the knowledge has slipped away. And perhaps that is something that is done to a Goddess. There are those who are always made uncomfortable by such power and such presence and such formlessness around it. Such confusion. Tripled creatures of contradiction. Beings of great beauty and great strength. Beings of creation and destruction, all at once of love and hate And everything in between. There have always been those who are far too uneasy with such contradictions, who will seek to suppress, who will seek to destroy. But there is something about the goddess that cannot be suppressed, cannot be forgotten, cannot be destroyed. The river might change course but the water stays the same, it still flows, it has its own nature, it has its own power, it has its own strength. And so for every time that we forget the Goddess, forget her name, we find her anew, And we tell stories that are oddly similar to the stories we told about the goddess before though she might have a different name we might give her a different face she is still in her essence the same as the river that flows In and out of all her mothers and all her sisters and all her daughters, the goddess flows. Ever changing. Ever the same. Perhaps it has nothing to do with being forgotten or destroyed. Perhaps it is part of the nature of the Goddess herself, less bound by form than other beings, more fluid and more powerful for it. And this amnesia that creeps over us again and again, perhaps that is a part of her power, and not a diminution of it. There was a great goddess. And her name is barely remembered. It was Anu or Danu. And her name remains on great waterways of Europe. And her name remains on the tribe of the people who came to Ireland. Masters of magic. Druids and shapeshifters, who slipped between worlds as easily as we slip between rooms. The people of the goddess they were called, the Tuatha Dé Danan, the people of Danu. And she was theirs and they were hers,
3: or so it seems.
1: Though what rites they practised, what prayers they said, if any, we do not remember. She left her name tied to a people. And it was daughters of her people who left their name tied to the land. This land, surrounded by waters criss by rivers, where lakes sprang forth to welcome new people, new arrivals. A land that moulds itself to the shape of the foot that is pressed into it. A land that is as fluid as water. The people of the Goddess, the people of Danu, They call this land Inishfall, the Island of Destiny. And they ruled here long, long ago. They won the land in battle, from their cousins, the Firbolg, and then again from the Fomorians. A different people, though not so different, they intermarried, they mingled their blood, and as often as they warred, they married. The last kings of the Tuatha Dé were brothers, and their names were Makul and Macect and Makrenya, the son of the wood, the son of the plough, the son of the sun. And they were married, each of them, to three sisters, Banba, Fola and Eru, and each of these goddesses believed herself to be the one who ruled supreme, and each of them was right in her own way. Banba was the warrior, at home in the wild places, in the forests. That her husband ruled in the high hills and the bare mountain sides. She roamed and held dominion. And if you were to challenge her in her place of power. Nothing could stand against Bamba. Not in the wilds with a weapon in her hands. For she was faster, swifter, stronger than any who came before her. The bride of the son of the plough was Fola. And if she faced Bamba in the wild woods, Bamba would indeed overcome her, for Fola was not one who placed great stock in physical prowess. Fola was a goddess of civilization. Hers was the place of the plough, the tame places, the places where people meet and mingle, and in these places, Fola was the queen, undisputed. And if you came before Fola in her place of power, she did not need weapons to cut you down. She could kill you with a look. She could wither you with a word. She could elevate you with a smile. None would challenge Fola. In her court and survive it. And in the high places, Eru ruled with the Son of the Sun from the hilltops of Tara and Ishnuk, bringing together all of those, the wild and the civilized all the peoples of that land in harmony transcending their divisions reminding them of what united them no one would so much as think of challenging Eru it simply would not cross your mind you might think of it a day or two later and wonder why you'd had the intent and there she was and she did not seem so terrifying in hindsight. But in the presence of Eru you would be struck by something, something difficult to name. But her presence had a power that did not weaken you, but made you stronger, made you feel as though she saw and understood you, made you realize that you had no need of challenging her, made you want to give her your heart and your soul and your loyalty. When the time of the Tuatha Dé came to an end, as the time of all peoples eventually come to an end, Macul, Macact, and Macreña killed an innocent man. They feared him, feared that his flattery of their land disguised a wicked intent. And in retaliation, his sons and grandsons sent an invading force. And the two Dé knew they were fighting a losing battle. Their magics were strong, but these newcomers were stronger and the great bloodshed that would ensue was something they wanted no part of. And so at first they tried to keep the strangers at bay, sending storms to push them back. But the newcomers had magic of their own, and the Sons of Mill made their landing, and came to the plain of Taltu, for the final reckoning. And on their way they met three women, one after another. They met Bamba first, and she told them she would give them her aid in the battle to come, if. They made a promise to her. That they and their descendants would call the land after her. And to this, the sons of Mill agreed. And then they met Fola. And she made them the same offer. That she would aid their cause if they named the island after her. And again, the Sons of Mill agreed. And at last, at Ishnach, they met Eru, who told them that she would give them her aid in the battle to come if they named their island after her. And the Sons of Mill Agreed. And when they lined up in their armies to face off against the great Tua de Danann, there was mist and a shimmer. And suddenly, that army was gone. And the sons of Mel inherited this new land a haunted land where the people of the goddess dwelled under every hill especially those that are unnaturally smooth and round in every wild place in every waterway there was the shadow of the she the people of the goddess the people of the other world And they gave those names to the land. Eru, they called it in their daily speech. Eru, that down through the years flowed and changed its shape until it became Erin, until it became Ireland, and Banba and Fola, the secret names, the names that poets use, the names of the wise, still held, still whispered. And so their names remain, the names of the goddesses, like the names of the rivers, and the names of the land, and the names that are public, and the names that are secret, the names of the goddesses, all that remain to us. And the names flow like a river ever young, ever old, ever renewing, the names that are the rivers, that are the goddesses, flowing from that first goddess, who might have been the water of life, might have been the waters of all creation. Might have been nothing more than a mistake of a word. Or might have been everything and anything in between. All goddesses begin and end with her. Danu. Danu.
0: Thanks for that, That was lovely. Um, So, as I asked Aaron, where did you come across this story?
1: Well, this has always been a bit of a thread that kind of runs through Irish mythology and different place names and is a sort of a mysterious thread because you have these people in Irish mythology called the Tuatha Dé Danann, the people of the goddess Danu. But there's no story about Danu. And then when you start looking at the different parts of Europe, there are rivers that are named after this goddess Danu. Like the Danube is the biggest one, (laughs) but apparently there are a bunch of them uh, all throughout Europe. And so there's like weird little trace elements of this goddess called Danu or Anu and that she was huge and this massively important goddess and nobody knows anything about her today and that's kind of always been really fascinating to me like how did we have a deity that was so important that we now know nothing about like was it did she have a secret cult and all her worshippers died out did people deliberately set out to like destroy the Danu cult Was it a mix of a few different things? We don't know and we're never going to know. And that's one of the things that I both love and hate about mythology. I used to fantasize a lot as a kid about time travel and like going and finding these things out. But actually, I think it's kind of beautiful now because it it gives you space to fill in with your own imagination and your own intuition and kind of go, well, I'm feeling my way into this.
3: It, it it's a really it's a really interesting thing about mythology, and it can be both frustrating and really liberating to have these tiny snippets of information. And it and it seems to mostly happen mostly around goddesses, <laughs> um, and around women in mythology, where we have these tiny bits of information. But then it gives us the freedom and the liberty to to write our own narratives and write our own stories and bring them to life in ways that that, that are relevant to us today. Um, I know. You know, the the role the goddesses and, and women in Celtic mythology is a really, really big topic. And I guess, like, how, how have you guys found it sort of bringing these stories and, and sort of digging deep to find the female characters and bring them to life? How, how has it been for you guys?
2: Well, we're actually just dedicating February of this year to the goddesses of Irish mythology because... You know, sometimes they're fantastic figures like Maeve and the Thawn that we mentioned earlier, or Maka, the goddess of war and battle rage. But sometimes the greatest heroes are always trained by uh, women. You know, Ku Cullen, who, Rixia, I know I've heard you tell a great Ku Cullen story as well, and the story of Connla, and uh, even Fiona Cool, also trained by women. So you find these amazing male warriors trained by shadowy female characters that you don't have an awful lot of uh, info about so we kind of took February to try and dig deep or as deep as you can you basically hit the the bedrock pretty quickly there's a small bit of surface soil there and you you scratch down and you try and put a few things together and you try and make sense of it within the world of the mythology that, that makes sense of it and then you basically are you kind of have to create something that makes sense of it and that's kind of what we found is we've been Telling this, these stories in, in, in February um, on our podcast uh, channel, um, so that we can just try and bring back a few of these stories. But then we keep on hitting this problem of
0: not having enough information, which is frustrating. No, that's a really good idea.
1: But I I, I agree very much with what Lona was saying about like it is both frustrating and a wonderful opportunity. Yeah.
0: Um, so so what are the goddesses that you're going to be focusing on? Can you say?
1: Uh, yeah, we had um, this story was the first and okay. uh, we also had the story of uh, clearer's wave, Con cleaner which is uh, a goddess uh, love story kind of a situation. Uh, ends tragically. Most Irish they love stories do. do. Almost all of <laughs> them do. We found one that yeah. doesn't once um, and that that's kind of open to interpretation and um, and then we also had uh, the story of Saive, who was uh, the wife of Fionn McCool. And uh, it is one of the most tragic stories you'll ever hear when you tell it from Fionn McCool's perspective. But we decided to tell it from Saive's perspective. And it's just a thousand worse. times worse. It's so much worse. Just so much worse. <laughs> it becomes this absolutely brutal, heartrending rending story. Um, it, so that's a great advertisement for our podcast that I just made.
3: I was going to say I was really hoping for a moment that you would say that it was this really beautiful, uplifting story, um, but unfortunately not. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah unfortunately not and the last story uh, which again is uh, the Anya story is uh, w- w- I researched why is Cashel famous there's this the two, apparently this group of kings were the kings in the called the Agonacta in Cashel in, in Munster and the High Kings of Munster for ages all because they have some lineage linked to Anya this goddess of fertility to the goddess of the moon the sun turns out she was raped by a king Uh, And the line of kings after her was, that was the reason why. And it was just really messed up. And it was this really kind of weird thing that we had had to get our head around. And we tried to get our head around it. Uh, But anyway, that's the last story of this season of Goddesses Stories. They
1: they are, I think it's, you know, it's a complicated legacy because they're very, very strong characters in Irish mythology. And as Aaron said, a lot of the time they're in the background. You know, you have Skahuk, the the trainer of Cucullin, who's Scottish. Uh, she's from the Isle of Skye, and uh, you know there is apparently there was once an epic of Skahuk that has been completely lost. She had a she had an epic the size of the Iliad about her and her deeds, and at some point people stopped telling it. And then you have all of these. Um, you also have a lot of these characters where like the the legacy is quite um, difficult. Like particularly, I think the Onya story because it involves rape and the Sive story as well is kind of got a lot of coercion and nastiness in it. Uh, it can be a little bit it'll it can be a little bit tricky because we one of the things we really kind of want to do is not sanitize these things and not make them uh, you know happy clappy stories when they're not and actually go into the emotion of them and actually like deal with it and grapple with it. But obviously, when you're dealing with difficult things like this, um, that's a delicate task. But I think it's a it's a worthwhile task as a as an artist and as a storyteller to actually just engage with stuff that we would all rather not engage with.
2: And the stories become better and better. They're, like, so much better once you actually shine the light on both sides. Like, it's like, oh, we'll just turn down this, the female perspective and just tell the male. And suddenly you're losing half of the fucking good stuff. A hundred percent, yeah. It's crazy. And so, it,
0: it also goes into that idea of, uh, you know, you, you have the, the, the masculine energy of these warriors of Ku Cullen and Finn McCool, But then there is also that divine feminine energy. Which mm-hmm. comes from the people that trained them, the the people behind them, the people that held them, the people that nurtured them, and um, and it just shows that whilst this you know is um, potentially the um, our imaginations, but I think that there's enough ev- evidence pointing to the fact that you know when these stories were alive and kicking, there there was much more of a prominent female presence within mm-hmm. within the world within these myths. Um, that just has been lost over time. I'm going to say and blame straight up organized religion, um, <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> which is yep, something
0: you know. that we we do we do talk about quite a lot because because it started to um, you know write things down, yeah, um, which is which oh. is kind of where the history came from was the months not who, write things down. That's the case, well, maybe there you go,
3: quite. and then and because.
0: Be- yes and because the um old mythology is very much an oral tradition mm. uh these things get lost uh because someone yeah. has chosen
2: and this is sure, it's literally his story <laughs> it's his story like it's literally the most <laughs> obvious thing they've it's ever right done in the name. so that's why her her story festival uh is a fucking great thing you can look it up online uh, an attempt to bring back well, stories
3: maybe- Sorry. Maybe one day we'll, someone will dig down into the earth and uncover a load of texts about the mm. goddess Danu and her religion and the people that followed her and we will find earth pots and all the things that um, tell us her entire story. But until then, let's just keep writing our own and sharing yeah. our yeah, own totally. and, and reimagining them and recreating them. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you guys one more question, um, sure. which is
0: how... Do you feel like, you know, like us? You, I'm assuming that you're missing the live shows. Oh god, yeah,
2: ah, uh, yeah, a lot. I mean, like it's. It's very tough not to be to be always looking for that uh, embrace with an audience and that loving kind of shared connection and interflow of music and collaboration that you only get in the moment that is so profoundly unique that is nothing like acting it's nothing like performing that I've ever experienced it is so wholly. Co-created with your audience in the room, and the only ever time I've felt like that is at family dinners when I'm watching one of my uncles or my father tell a story from their childhood when they've really been so connected to it you know so that's kind of like
0: yeah yeah good stuff and but I know exactly what you mean it's it's actually painful. I was chatting with a, a musician friend of mine just today. And we're saying, like, in the last year, so bearing in mind, I used to stand on a stage in front of people twice a week, at least once or twice a week. And this year, just gone, I've performed live three times. And it is, it's actually quite painful (laughs) it's
1: it's brutal man and i like i have i have spent years saying like i'm not the performer one in candlelit tales i'm the bookworm that has been coerced into performing and like i don't really need it the way other performers and like had this story in my head and this year has just shown me how that's not true like that there's there's as Aaron was saying it's just a, an incredible human connection that you get from storytelling particularly that is uh wonderful i have a, i've performed twice um and and you know and managed to get performances in in schools uh and it's just it's medicine it, it really is it is yeah, food for the soul and it just yeah. reminds you it remind i think you know this year has really shown me that we need We need to remind ourselves constantly that we are human uh, through our interactions with each other. And and being shut up in four walls on your own is not uh, a way for a human to live because you just can't do it.
3: Have you guys got anything coming up that you want to share or tell our audiences about or any workshops or anything coming up?
2: Well, I guess we're very excited about our St. Patrick's Day kind of thing. Again, it's a podcast, but we just get creative about these fucking things. Um, We have a a kind of an online uh, storytelling course that we're doing again and again until we're basically allowed out again. Um, And we're... St. Patrick got very famous there, fair play to him. And uh, everyone knows about Patrick's Day, so we want to tell the other side of that.
0: He's the, uh, the most favourite of the patron saints over here as well. St. Patrick's Day is such a big celebration yeah. all over the UK, all over yeah. the world really, isn't
1: it? So, it's, <laughs> isn't yeah. that ironic, don't you think? I mean, it's halfway through Lent, and it was widely acknowledged yeah. that the Irish couldn't get through Lent without one drink, so... That's why they put Paddy's Day there. So let's,
3: let, yeah, let's create a festival in the middle to have a have a drink. <laughs> does it does it have to be,
0: does it have to be here? Yes, 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 it does. Yes, Absolutely. it can't be any other time, and, any no. other time of the year.
1: And I always want to mention when you are talking about Paddy's Day on the seventeenth. Do not forget that Saint Patrick was married to a woman named Sheila, and her day Pop, is yeah. on the eighteenth. And on the eighteenth, you take your shamrock that you wore on Paddy's Day. You drop it into a glass of whiskey, and then you drink it, and that is the tradition.
3: So that's where Dan and the Shamrock comes from.
1: That's how you drown a Shamrock, and that's
2: why it's for Sheila. So you got Paddy's Day and you got Sheila's Day. So we're going to be telling the kind of the story, the fuller story of Saint Patrick or Paddy, and uh, which links in with the O'Sheaen story, which is quite, quite a well-known story in Irish Irish kind of schools. Everyone would know O'Sheaen and Tirrenog, mm-hmm. but they didn't really know that Osheen and Saint Patrick had a little bit of a quarrel had a little bit of a tussle had a little bit of they a, had a whole a
1: conversation about god and paganism and we're going to be telling that story
0: that is all we've got time for i'm afraid but thank you so much aaron and sorca for coming all the way onto zoom and talking to us here um it's been great having you on and chatting about celtic mythology we'll have to have you on again sometime um where can people find you
1: and uh, they can find us on our website, Candlelit
0: And they can find us on
2: social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Candlelit And they can find Candlelit Tales podcasts wherever they get their podcasts.
3: Thank you so much for joining us on our February edition of the Embers Collective show on Soho Radio. Massive, massive thank you also to Aaron and Sirka Hegarty from Candlelit Tales Dublin. If you'd like to find out more about what they're up to, you can find them on Facebook and Instagram. And you can also find their wealth of podcasts through wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Thank you also once again to Soho Radio for having us. Until next time, cheerio.